Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Dyer, and welcome to Colorado Inside Out on this Friday, January the 26th. Not only did we have the New Hampshire primary results coming in on Tuesday, but we also learned of other election results regarding the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And yes, former Colorado Rockies great Todd Helton will be a member of the class of 2024 uh, this spring, uh, this summer, I should mention. I'm so happy for him. I, it's just so well-deserved, and uh, he waited way too long. So congratulations to Todd Helton. Uh, our lineup for this week on Colorado Inside Out, we have Patty Calhoun, founder and editor of Westward, Tyrone Glover, uh, leading civil rights and criminal defense attorney here in Denver, Jesse Paul, political reporter at the Colorado Sun, and George Brockler, former DA for Colorado's 18th Judicial District, as well as a conservative columnist and host on 710 KNUS Radio. Yes, uh, there were committee hearings about possible bills at the Colorado Legislature this week, but there was also a lot of chaos surrounding our now former House Minority Leader, Mike Lynch Patty. It was a week. Well, interesting that we were talking about the Hall of Fame, because in the legislature we also have a Hall of Shame, but interestingly, it doesn't seem to have a big effect on national elections when you look at the politicians who are out there. And here Mike Lynch, who very thoughtfully left the leadership position on Wednesday before we taped this, is still running in CD4. He's up against Lauren Boebert and Richard Holthofer and such an interesting array of people. But there are, there are a few morals here. One, you should probably never tell state troopers who pull you over drunk not to let the press know about it. It took a while, but once it finally hit, it really hit big. He did the right thing to resign his post as minority leader. He seems to be staying in the race, which is fine. It's his choice. I mean, he certainly is up against someone like Lauren Boebert, who's had plenty of personal issues, too. But compared the Hall of Shame, compared to this table, I can't even imagine how much fun George Brockler had hosting a debate last night. <laughs> Let's go to you, Tyrone. You know, we've had a couple of short weeks, and this was like our first big week to have. Uh, some substance, and th this is all that was reported. And I find it so interesting that it took over almost two years, a year and a half, to get this story out. Exactly. And as a civil rights attorney, I believe in redemption, the capacity for change. You are not based solely on your worst day. But with our elected officials, you know, this comes down to the public trust, right? This comes down to integrity and not being forthcoming about these struggles, about what's going on, not reporting it to his, his party. Um, to the folks in the General Assembly. I think that's what really turned this into, I think, as big of a controversy as it is deservedly getting attention for. So he ultimately did the right thing. Hopefully we can get past all of this and start getting into some of the more substantive things that need to happen this session. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. And, you know, Jesse, when you saw that video, um, that puts another oomph onto this story about how severe the situation was. Yeah, we, when we got it, it kind of confirmed everything that the Colorado State Patrol had reported in its, you know, initial incident reports. I want to touch a little bit on, you know, how the press corps didn't get this, uh, didn't find out about it, and, and shame on me as a member of the press corps. I think it's important to talk about. You know, there are 100 lawmakers in the, in the legislature, and when these DUIs have happened in the past or someone has gotten in trouble, typically we get tipped off to it uh, by, by a lawmaker or uh, lobbyists or someone outside the Capitol and law enforcement. And this really did wait, you know, almost a year and a half before it came out. And I think, um, you know, people are asking, how, how was this hidden? And 
frankly, we just don't background check everybody as much as maybe we should, right? There are 100 lawmakers. It's like $1,000 plus to do a background check on every single person. But I wonder who knew about this at the Capitol and didn't share it, or who was advising Representative Lynch and didn't say, maybe you should come out with this. About a week and a half, maybe two weeks before this came out, I did a long interview with him ahead of his congressional bid. It wasn't something that came up. And, and my first question, as soon as I found out about it, was, why didn't you disclose this? You're running for Congress. You, you knew that someone was probably going to plug in your name and date of birth, and this was going to come out. And again, as, as someone has, keeps saying to me, a Republican consultant, you know, sometimes the, uh, the cover-up is worse than the crime. That's always what ends up getting people in politics. Mm -hmm. And George, you did speak with him this week as well on your show. I did. I had him on the radio. Uh, before I get to that, though, a quick thought. I think that uh, one of the takeaways I have from watching that video was, dang, State Patrol does a nice job. You know what I mean? They really did a good job out there on the street. Um, but in talking with Mike, and I'm taking with something that Tyrone said too, you know, this is a guy who is a family guy. He had dedicated himself to the service of his country in uniform, volunteered to serve at a time when nobody has to do that. And so by all accounts, this is a guy who in that one pivotal moment made a decision that I think some are going to use to try to judge his character long term. And I think that's disappointing. But, you know, I try to put myself in the position of these guys and gals that do this. And, and from the moment you make the decision not to tell, every day thereafter, it becomes more and more impossible to tell. So sitting down with Jesse a couple weeks ago and saying, I got to tell you something, I got arrested in the weeks leading up to my reelection and maybe two months before I got to be a speaker, you know, that would be mind blowing for someone to be able to do that. I think the lesson here to be learned is if you're in the public eye and you commit a public crime and you get arrested for it, there is no other answer than you have to come forward right away and let people know. Every other decision after that is going to be viewed as selfish and political, and that's how this one was viewed. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to mention that the members of his caucus who voiced opposition to this, who brought the no-confidence vote, who ultimately pushed him out, weren't criticizing him for the fact that he had gotten the DUI. It was they were upset that two months later when they elected a minority leader, they had no idea about this. And so they felt blindsided. They felt like it, it embarrassed them and, and left them open to criticism from Democrats and, and weakened their position on issues like crime and, and gun control. That's a good point, because obviously you are not at your best when you're drunk driving. You're not going to make a good, good decision right then, because you already have made a bad one. But the next day, right. you've got to realize you have to come be forthcoming. Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay. Let's talk a little further about the state of the GOP here in Colorado. It filed a lawsuit to keep independents from voting in the June primary. It has new leadership now in the State House with Rose Pugliese, uh, and she is vowing to block Democratic bills, probably not all of them, but the minority party really is trying to get fired up again and try to make a dent in the session. Well, some of the bills that I'm watching and I'm very much interested in um, are ones that hopefully are not going to be controversial. There's a series of criminal justice bills around recidivism, which has been this really interesting space. Uh, reform around helping folks who are incarcerated uh, get tr job training um, to actually parole and get hired. There's been a huge fair chance hiring um, uh, movement. And now what is looking like going to be a uh, bipartisan uh, delving into all that is recidivism, how to define it appropriately, how to get our recidivism numbers down, and actually have 
you know, these folks matriculate into our communities and become part of our, our communities and our workforces. So I'm really excited about these, and hopefully these are not the ones that the minority leader is talking about. Uh, there is one that maybe has me just a little bit concerned, and it's the state oversight uh, for our county jails. We've just been getting, uh, I think, just report after report, uh, not only from our jails, but from our prisons and even all the way up to the Bureau of Prisons level, but this one specifically about our county jails and having more state standards, state oversight, accountability from our, uh, our attorney general's offices. And hopefully this is one also that's non-controversial, but sometimes these types of things do fall down partisan lines and we could be in for a fight. Okay, Jesse. So kind of talking about what the minority leader, the new minority leader, Rose Puglisi, said, you know, we're going to try and stop big, um, you know, democratic policies. Let's be honest here. You know, Republicans have no say in the matter in terms of uh, what goes on at the Capitol. They're a minority both in the House and Senate. They can't stop the policies. But what they can do is highlight, you know, what they feel like Democrats are doing wrong. Again, the last week, though, all the reporters at the Capitol have been focusing on Mike Lynch and what happened there. And so, you know, Dem Republicans have to get out of their own way. And, and if they want to have an, some influence at the Capitol and highlight to voters heading into an election year what they can and get, can't do or, or how they would act as a foil to the Democratic majority. I think also what's important to remember is, is Republicans really cannot win back majorities in the Senate or House in this upcoming election. So the best they can do is kind of set themselves up for the 2026 20, election for some success. And you know, if they are unsuccessful in this year, um, in, in the upcoming election, if they can't win back some of the seats that they've lost, if they can't um, you know, hold on to some of the seats that they have currently, they're going to be in deep trouble and be kind of in a generational permanent, you know, minority for, you know, the next four, six, eight years. Hmm. George. You know, when I hear Jesse talk like that, I want both a Kleenex and something alcoholic in this cup as the token <laughs> Republican at the table. That's just water. Um, there's a couple things going on. One, uh, the legislative criminal justice reform stuff, some of the early bills, I've got some significant concerns about them, not the ones that Tyrone was talking about. But there's one in particular where we are trying to strip away as much discretion as possible from prosecutors. And one of the bills seeks to uh, redo how we address incompetency uh, in, for adults and juveniles. Right now, if you say, hey, I'm incompetent, I don't understand what's going on in court. I don't understand what's taking place with the charges against me then you can't be prosecuted, which makes total sense. The legislature is trying to say, even if you can't understand what's going on in court, even if you're legally incompetent, you should still be able to engage in a contract with the prosecutor's office, something called diversion, and engage in a pretrial diversion thing. And then they try to tie the, uh, the DA's hands by saying, you can't use their incompetence against them to deny them access to a program that is based wholly on their ability to take responsibility and engage in some sort of rehabilitation. It's just something you couldn't see get successful if we had more uh, balance in government, but in a one-party dominated legislature, we're gonna have it. One other thing you mentioned, that ballot measure, uh, or the ballot, uh, I'm sorry, you, you mentioned the thing with the GOP where they're going to court to try to, the outcome of the case is pretty irrelevant, in my opinion, because Kent Theory is backing a series of measures that have made it through title board. If they get on the ballot, they're gonna end all of this. It's going to change fundamentally how we conduct uh, elections moving forward in the state of Colorado. And this thing, this result of this court case, will be just a matter of this election cycle and only this election cycle. All right, Patty. Kyle, just to follow on um, the bill regarding diversion and incompetency. You know, we have been in crisis 
with folks sitting down, languishing at uh, our mental health hospital because they are going through these incompetency um, valuations. Uh, they are not getting uh, treatment. They're not getting um, evaluated, right? And, and they're languishing. And what we're getting is we're getting national reports, we're getting local reports um, about how this system is broken and it's not working. So I think this idea that, yes, maybe. Um, them completely understanding what's going on with them from a trial perspective, but being able to engage and sort of understand the diversion process and what that entails, maybe can take some of this pressure off of what is obviously a broken system. And it's one of the few things that I've heard being done um, to try to even address this. Yeah, the answer is more funding for mental health and treatment. I agree with you. More, more money for CMHIP to conduct these, 100%. But you don't fix a broken leg with new shoes, and I think that's what we're doing here. Patty. Speaking of broken legs, so when you look at the Republican Party and what's going on, the shenanigans at the State House, I mean, they did not need the Mike Lynch distraction. When you think about this upcoming U.S. Supreme Court issue on Donald Trump getting on the primary ballot, and also the fact that Dave Williams, as the head of the Colorado Republican Party, wanted to endorse and, in fact, voted, pushed it so that the party endorsed Donald Trump while Nikki Haley is still on the ballot. And then you get into the fight against 108. We have to remember, this is a minority party in the sense that only 23% of Coloradans are registered Republicans. 48% are unaffiliated. And they should have a right to vote in the state primary come June that is paid for by the state. Mm -hmm. All right. This election year, we'll put the pro-life and pro-choice arguments in the spotlight again. Monday was the anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision in 1973 when the Supreme Court recognized the right to abortion under the Constitution. Now, in 2022, that was reversed by the Supreme Court. And now in 2024, Colorado abortion rights advocates have started a ballot campaign to get an amendment on the November ballot here in Colorado, which would enshrine the right to get an abortion into our state's Constitution. Jesse, there was talk last Last Friday to recognize this anniversary, and then uh, there was a rally outside the Capitol earlier this week. I'm concerned about voters being confused about this because Democrats at the legislature recently passed a state law that enshrined abortion access in, in state law. So this goes a, state, a step further by putting it in the Constitution. And I think that there is some politics at play here. It's helpful for Democrats to have their voters turn out in an election year. We know that the Colorado electorate overwhelmingly um, you know, su supports abortion rights. Um, but this will probably put the issue to rest for, for good in Colorado. There's been debate about how far you know, Colorado voters will go on abortion, what they think of it. There's been all kinds of polling go coming out. Republicans have, you know, say, look, Colorado voters support some level of restrictions on abortion access. Democrats have said for a long time they support, they, they want unfettered abortion access in Colorado. This is going to kind of end that argument once and for all. I'm interested to see if there is any organized opposition to the ballot measure. Uh, the, the proponents of it have already raised a million and a half plus dollars, and that's just for signature gathering. They're, they're committed to this. This is something that they're, um, you know, kind of throwing the, the kitchen sink at. Um, but whether or not there's an organized effort to fight it and one that, that can be successful or put up with it, and again, what the election results will be, I think, is, is going to say a lot about where abortion politics are in Colorado. It may settle the question for good. Mm -hmm. George. Look, as a pro-life guy, I'm aghast at the idea that we're going to stick the word abortion into our foundational government document, the Constitution, especially when we have perhaps the most permissive abortion law in the country, if not on the planet Earth. 
But from a political standpoint, I'm thrilled they're doing this right now because there are no statewide candidates. There are no major issues on the ballots. We're not going to win back the House. We're not going to win back the Senate. Maybe the only competitive con uh, congressional district race, race is the eighth. And these are the kinds of measures that spur people to show up and vote in great numbers. We've seen it in Ohio. We've seen it in, in Kansas and other states. They're going to waste that issue on this ballot. If that's when it's going to show up, I'm glad they're doing it right now. Interesting. Patty. Well, it's not just going to enshrine abortion, but it also removes something that was passed 40 years ago, an amendment that prohibited any public funds being used for abortions. And we're talking about health care even for public officials. So I think if you look at Colorado, the very first state that allowed that legalized abortion when Dick Lamb pushed it back in 67, it was limited, but it was groundbreaking when that happened. And Colorado has always been in the lead on this as a woman's health care choice. And I think when voters come out, and they will come out on this issue, it will again be affirmed that it is a woman's health care choice. And if it's going in the Constitution, it's because they don't like, that voters don't like what they're seeing coming out of D.C. in the Supreme Court. Hmm. And I think similar to other states, which I think are not traditionally as ahead of the curve as Colorado has been on this issue, um, it makes all the sense to put this forth when they are. Um, I do have some concerns about the uh, public finance ban and that being something that really does mo mobilize opposition. I think if we were talking what we saw in some of these other states where it was just about codifying it, enshrining it in the Constitution, um, that may not be enough to rally up opposition. But overturning this 40-year ban on the public financing, I could see something like that being the type of talking point that gets folks riled up into the table. Okay. Uh, Monday night into late Tuesday night, the annual point in time count took place to decipher how many homeless individuals there are, and not just in our big cities in Colorado, but this was a nationwide effort. Uh, George, last year's count in time in the metro area, the whole area, showed about 9,000 people who don't have homes who are living outside. Yeah, if, you've, if you're looking for an example of the futility of government to address a problem, homelessness in the Denver metro area is probably it. We have not done a good job of this in my lifetime. It feels like when I was a kid walking the streets and my parents used to work at the federal building, you never saw what you see now. And it's not just an impact of the growth of population. Whatever incentives we're creating, whatever uh, resources we're providing, we're ineffective at doing this. We need to take a new look at this. Now, I, I'm all hopeful for Michael Johnston. Uh, for the mayor. I want him, I want Mike Johnson's plan to work. I'm dubious of housing first. It hasn't worked anywhere else on the planet. Aurora has taken a completely different approach, and that is they're going to purchase this hotel, this Crown Plaza, and make it much more of a rehab recovery work first approach. I'm anxious to see that tried next door to see who gets a better result. But at the end of the day, um, this isn't going to get better independent of success just because we continue to have Greg Abbott's buses show up and dumping off more and more people who are sapping those resources. This is not going away. And uh, I wish we had a better answer and better numbers. I'm hoping for better numbers. And, Patty, we find the numbers out in the spring, summer? I, when do we find out? It should be several months from yeah. now. And, of course, this year we're going to have skewed numbers no yeah. matter what because of the migrants. Right. Because they are people living on the street, and we could have many, many more. It's going to impact Denver much more because Denver's growth actually over the last year was far less than it was in the rest of the metro area, which at least signified it was not just an inner city problem or within a city limit problem, but it spilled far beyond. I have to say, 
I've seen homeless people downtown in Denver for 40 years. The number is not anywhere close to where it's been. But of course, with the migrants coming in, it's so much worse. Kudos to Johnston and the other mayors in D.C. last week who really talked about Congress and the feds having to help provide because right now, our resources are swamped, and the irony of Johnston having really set out to deal with the homeless and the people living on the streets, and then having to deal with so many more because of the migrants, it's a challenge for everyone. But that was last week, and things work really slow in Washington, right? Right, and in the meantime, you've got tens of thousands of people. Who do, will, we might mean, go over 10,000. Does this mean we can't afford to be a sanctuary city anymore? I mean, we say we are, but now we've proven we can't be that. Well, it's what do you do if people come here? You just say, go away, bust them out. Whether or not you say you're a sanctuary city, people keep coming. People are homeless whether or not you say it's a good idea. Maybe it's when we make it easier, more and more of them show up. Hmm. Tyrone, your thoughts? But I think much of the data coming out of this is that it's folks that were here, were housed, and then became unhoused. Right? This sort of notion that the types of programs and the way that we hold ourselves out is what's attracting all of these folks here that then become unhoused, I think is starting to be dispelled by the data that we're seeing now. When what comes up in sort of the effect of, of the, the recent uptick in migrant populations, that remains to be seen. But at least when it sort of, um, when we look just straight up at the sort of more recent homelessness crisis, um, it's not this idea that we're attracting this population. These are folks that were here, that were housed, that were able to afford to live in these communities, and now they're not able to. And now they're sort of succumbing to drugs, mental health, um, loss of jobs, loss of housing. And so I think it's about really taking care of the folks who are in our community. It's about taking care of Coloradans. It'll be so interesting to see what the numbers are because we had a thousand people who were housed by the end of the year, uh, but we have the influx of migrants. Jesse. So the legislature always looks at this as, as homelessness, I think, as a city issue, right? They try and help along the edges in terms of housing. You can boost housing density or boost housing stock. Again, affordability is part of the issue here, but there's a lot going on. But the migrant crisis, though, the legislature and the governor have kind of taken a backseat to this. They haven't talked about it heading into the session. The governor didn't mention it in his State of the State speech. I don't know of any bills that the Democratic majority is planning to bring to help. Um, you know, cities and, and school districts and hospitals through um, the crisis and the influx of people. So I think there's going to be building pressure on the legislature throughout the session to do something, whether it's financially or otherwise, to try and help local governments through this. And whatever the, the count comes out as, I think we'll be able to you know, provide evidence toward, uh, you know, hey, we need help. We can't just do this on our own state. You know, this is this is something, right? I mean, the, the mayor is going to Washington, D.C. For, for assistance, but he's not walking across, you know, Broadway and Lincoln to the Capitol where there's also people with, with purse strings who can, you know, help. Yeah, I did see the governor did put something out um, today. My fellow governors have called around congressional leaders and the Biden administration to come together to reach some kind of border security deal. So he is saying something on his. This. Nine governors sent out a letter this mm -hmm. week, including Polis. Yeah. But it's very easy for state elected officials to ask Congress, which you know passed seven bills or whatever last year, to do something. Realistically, I mean, states and cities and counties and hospitals, they're on their own, right? So there, there's going to have to be some kind of local solution until there's some grand compromise in Congress. Yeah, yeah you're right. All right, now let's uh, go through our round where everyone shares a high and a low of this week. Could be local, could be anywhere else. Uh, let's start with a low and with you, Patty. 
great the DIA is going to have a new security system, a new screening system, but we've got to get a solution for the train that went down on Wednesday and delayed people for hours. I'm flying out this weekend and I'm just <laughs> holding my breath. <laughs> Tyrone. Well, I have confidence they're going to get the train right. Hopefully that one's a pretty simple fix. Uh, my disgrace sort of uh, dovetails with our last topic area and the cutting of, um, you know, I think 400 thousand dollars from the six hundred thousand uh, dollar budget uh, for the safe lots uh, I've talked about this on this program before it's not enough just to you know bring folks out of homelessness we have to keep them from sliding into homelessness right so the actually getting the rental assistance uh, through to stave off all these evictions I think was a victory but then we know that folks when they are sort of sliding into homelessness, sometimes the stop on the way from being housed is often their car. And not having a safe place for them to, to sleep, to try to at least have kind of a, an interim place um, that's safe and, and, and not going to get towed um, is very important. And it's just unfortunate that that program was, was gutted very recently, just mm -hmm. as of last week. Jesse. So the legislature always starts out with what I call a syllabus week, but recently, in recent years, it's become syllabus month, where the lawmakers really don't do much for the first several weeks of session, and then everyone's hair is on fire for the last month, including mine, and I would prefer if things didn't go that way, and I think it just makes for better lawmaking if they spread it out and use their full 120 days instead of trying to like jam everything into the last 30 days. It would be nice for my sleep schedule, and so I think it's a disgrace that we're in that uh, cycle again. Yes. All right, George. We have uh, 10 members of a 535-member uh, United States Congress, both the House and the Senate, and once again, they have failed to pass any sort of comprehensive budget that would help America appreciate not only where our money was going, but have some certainty that we'd be able to fund ourselves over a 12-month period of time. We are back to continuing resolution number one billion, and we continue to put ourselves in a position to do anything other than govern appropriately. I'd like to see Congress get back to the ability of doing the basic blocking and tackling. That won't be the only sports reference, by the way, later today. But the basic blocking and tackling and uh, figure out a way to do their jobs. All right, something positive. Goodbye to Jim Havey, who was a great filmmaker, did so much to capture Colorado. He passed away before he was able to finish his film on Rocky Flats. They're trying to finish it without him, and we hope it makes it. Yeah. Tyrone. Well, in addition, I think they're going to get the trains right, but in addition to uh, the new uh, security screening area, we're now, I think, seeing, and what's reported to happen, uh, a nationwide reduction in airfare, um, at least uh, domestically. And I think there's a hope that we're going to very quickly get back to pre-pandemic levels, the sort of revenge travel phase um, is hopefully sunsetting. And I think that just means that uh, Coloradans uh, can afford to sort of at least travel domestically to see loved ones to go home for the holidays and won't be so overburdened with all the inflation we saw around uh, airline flight prices. That'd be a good thing. All right, Jesse. I just want to talk about the Capitol Press Corps. I've okay. been, it's my seventh legislative session. I'm really proud of the folks who are in it this year. Um, just a really robust number of people, a lot of young journalists who uh, are super hungry and asking a lot of great questions. So Colorado is really lucky to have such great people trying to keep an eye on what their lawmakers are doing. That's great to hear. I should have known that you would lead off with the Todd Helton thing. That is, when good things happen to good people, you know, you want to celebrate. I think the fact that you have a guy that was in uniform 17 years, all right here, which is really an anomaly anymore. You just don't have that. But my favorite story about Todd Helton is 
uh, back when he played as quarterback for the Tennessee Volunteers. A lot of people don't remember that. He got to start in his season, I think his senior year, because the starting quarterback got hurt. And then he got hurt. And it ended up, I think, pushing him towards baseball. The guy that ended up taking over for Todd Helton under center, anybody? Peyton Manning who ended up being here. So just a great story all the way around. And I love to see Peyton Manning reach out and give the shout out to Todd Helton. Uh, it was just a feel good moment, especially when you only have two Rockies in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I love seeing the video of him getting a phone call and with him with oh, his cool. girls and his wife and all their friends. That was really, really happy. So deserved. All right, this week, Governor Polis handed out a, a six citizenship medals to those who really go out of their way to strengthen our communities and really move our state forward. This is the ninth year for the Civico Colorado Governor Citizenship, citizenship medals, and it got pretty emotional when the Colorado Mountain Leader Award went posthumously to the late and great nature photographer John Fielder. The award ceremony was at History Colorado, where John gave all of his work before he died. And this is the first weekend for a new exhibit called Flow. John Fielder on the River. It can be seen in the mezzanine gallery that now bears his name. Definitely go check it out and see our state's beauty through John Fielder's lens. He's a great man. We miss him. Thank you, panelists, for coming this week. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. We appreciate you very much. Krista Kafer is going to be sitting in this chair next week for me. Uh, so thanks to her. I will see you in two weeks here on PBS 12.